Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Andy, you are fresh off of the trailer for Giant Give me your hot take. Well, it uh, it's big. <laughs> it is big. It's a beefy trailer. It's got the great line, uh, you know, uh, you should have killed him a long time ago. Now he's too rich to kill. <laughs> no, right. Seems like, I don't know if that's the, the Texan approach. <laughs> well, back in the day, back in the day, Andy. Maybe still present. Some, I don't know. <laughs> a mighty monument of memorable entertainment, Andy. That's what this is. Oh, and love. There has ah, to be love. <laughs> what I wonder, what if you could help me? Um, uh, what what kind of name is Bick? It feels like a name that they just ran out of nicknames in Texas, and they started with Rick, and then Mick, and then like boxer, <laughs> like, boxer boots, Buster, uh, uh, you know, saddle. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually they just landed on, I, we're out of letters, let's just start from the beginning again, and it's just going to be Bick. And that feels like not a, it feels like not a suitable character nickname for an actor named Rock. <laughs> Bick and Rock. <laughs> Bick is actually a name, Pete, this is interesting. It's a name of English origin and it means from the Hewers Ford. Those are more words that don't mean anything, Andy. <laughs> it's all in a row <laughs> from a Hewers Ford. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so this trailer, it is big. It, there is a giant, like big letter print book. 
that turns pages. It has uh, lovely watercolors of our principal characters throughout the film. Um, it has, uh, so there are lots of pages turning, um, which is, I guess, giant. Maybe because it's based on a book. Also, I think, probably to uh, make a call to the sort of fairy tale nature of this epic Texas story. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm so stuck on Bic now. Oh. I'm reading on names.org about the name Bic. This is good to know, Pete. How unique is the name Bic? From 1880 to 2016, less than five people per year have been born with the first name Bic. And then it 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 clarifies that it says, "Hurrah! You are a unique individual." <laughs> I think the film, the book technique that they use is kind of a peculiar one. I get that it's okay; it's based on this this classic. I don't know; it's a classic novel, but Edna Ferber's book. Um, it's gonna say Bic, and it's not her Bic; it's her book. It's definitely uh, not named her Bic. Giant and. It's, you know, so do we need to have the page turn just to represent that? It seems a little silly that it, uh, that it goes into that. You know, I'm not 100% sure it's uh, needed to kind of do the page turning thing. Um, I don't know. I, it was kind of an odd choice, I thought. Here's the thing I was interested in. There's a lot of James Dean in this trailer, right? I mean, it feels like there's a bunch of James Dean. We get the oil in the beginning, and then we get James Dean discovering the oil, and we're it it makes you think this is kind of a James Dean vehicle. Look at what they're on the heels of, yeah. right? James Dean's death and his two previous films, which were successes. And by the time they're cutting this trailer, they already knew he was dead. Yeah, I mean this is a, this came out a year later. So so any opportunity to kind of highlight the James Dean um, side of this film, I think, is one that they're going to absolutely take. So I, I can see why they emphasized him so much. Um, I mean, Rock Hudson was fresh on the heels of All That Heaven Allows. So he certainly is somebody who uh, was in the spotlight as well. It's not like he was uh, an unknown mm-hmm. by any mm-hmm. stretch of the imagination. Same with Elizabeth Taylor. It's it's definitely a uh, uh, a, a trio of very popular actors at the time. But I do think that the emphasis of James Dean in particular, because, uh, you know, I mean, it really is kind of a story of the Benedicts. And in particular, you know, we're watching the relationship over, you know, the 25 years of the story between uh, Leslie and Bick. And, uh, and to a large extent, James Dean kind of becomes the antagonist in the film. And uh, to that end, I think it, it's kind of exciting to see that element of of him in the trailer here and get some of that tension that's going on here. Yeah, and and we get that here. We don't have, I think, enough of that truly memorable age makeup in the trailer. We get some snippets of it, but you don't really get to focus on it the way you do as you watch the film, which I can't wait to talk about. Um, and <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, bottom line. As you said, it, coming off of what where James Dean had been and his just overall publicity, this trailer, if you're a James Dean fan of the time, you would have seen this movie. You would have gone to see it, I think, right? I mean, that's the case The case we're making. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, they, they push everybody. I mean, they don't push everybody as much as the James Dean, but they certainly feature everybody prominently yeah. here. And I think everybody who is a Rock Hudson fan is going to go see this. This is just one of those big epic movies that I think everybody was going to go see because it's so big. Yeah. The trailer makes it feel like this is big and everybody who's anybody 
is going to be going to see this movie. The trailer makes it feel big. This is Texas, mighty colossus of the Southwest, a land of infinite variety and violent contrasts, a land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, George Stevens brings us Texas' own Gone with the Wind in his 1956 James Dean epic, Giant. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're enjoying tuning into our show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating more great films that we're talking about, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the list of movies related to our show that week. In honor of the film we're talking about tonight, this week's list will be Western Epics. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. But more than a state, here is a state of mind, manners, morals, emotions of people who are often as exhilarating, exasperating, exciting as the land they belong to. The way you told me to get ready for this movie, Andy, was to get real excited, just real, real excited about the age makeup. <laughs> It's not not great. It's not great. Are you glad that I at least prepared? I am for really it? glad. That would have been a a a souring factor in my <laughs> review of this movie. Can we? I want to follow up on what we started with just a minute ago on on what it means to be a Bic? big We're back to big a big. It's a big big movie. <laughs> uh, what it means to be a big movie because I struggled with this movie. I really struggled with it, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure why, because because for me, where Gone with the Wind felt like a big movie to me, this movie just felt long. It felt way too long, and it felt like uh, the uh, that it it just sort of stomped over parts of the story that I wanted to see more of, and lingered on parts of the story that were insufferable. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I I think that there's. A nature of of kind of these epic films, especially uh, something that happened in this period. I think that there was kind of a, a call for these big epics and people really enjoyed longer films that really uh, wrapped you up in a full story. I think maybe we're seeing fewer of those these days. One, because it takes up, uh, you know, a, a screen for a much longer time and they can't squeeze as many shows in. And two, I think that the way TV has evolved nowadays, it's much easier to take a long story and turn it into a, kind of an epic miniseries that we that we see so often with things like um, uh, the Hatfields and McCoys, comes to mind as, yeah. as kind of a big story that that they allowed a much longer time to do it and they did it on TV. Mm-hmm. Um I I think that the uh just the nature of the story lingering um I don't know. I guess it's one of those things. It can work. I don't think that this one uh fails by any stretch of the imagination. I actually do find myself enjoying it. Is it one of my favorite epics? No. Um I, I do struggle with some of it, but on the whole, I actually ended up uh, kind of enjoying it. I, and I think it's just one of those things that if you can click with the characters and you can kind of find a place to to latch on, it might be easier to kind of uh, sit with it and just kind of uh, enjoy the ride. 
Yeah, possibly. I, and I think I, you know, to your point, I really clicked with uh, with Jet, uh, James Dean's character. I really clicked with him. He was my absolutely my favorite thing in here. And I think he showcased um, what a, a fantastic character actor he would have been, I think. Uh, this this movie is a case study in what he was able to do, especially coming right off of um, the, the last two films where, you know, he was he was not this. He was not the the Texas ranch hand, and by the the middle of the film, um, you know, I I bought it. I had forgotten uh, earlier than that. I mean, God, the film's three days long. I I'd forgotten that you know I had just seen him in uh, Rebel Without a Cause, and he was just Jet, and I I really enjoyed the performance. I struggled with the character, um, you know, with the the way the character was written, and and this is where I have problems with the story. And I'm not sure if I should blame, uh, you know, the book or the adaptation, uh, but I really do have some challenges with the story and the way they use the characters to get these things done. There's these, the uh, uh, the alcoholism through line that is uh, at best perforated. Um, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with with using these kinds of elements only when they need to move a particular plot point forward. I really struggle with, with Jet's turn um, from the clumsy Texas ranch hand to the demonic drunk tycoon. I'm not sure I, I bought it. I'm not sure I found it credible as credible. I, it's certainly not, not what I wanted. And I was found myself really disappointed at the, the sort of lack of satisfying resolution to the potential romance. That's kind of what I look for in these movies is then that love triangle was right in the beginning, you know, that was set up very early and I sort of felt unresolved there too. It's it's an interesting point the the idea of the relationship and the potential love triangle. Um, I I actually found it pretty interesting that they opted to not go that route and instead um, have a, a, later in the story have Jet actually start kind of uh, hitting on their daughter, uh, their youngest daughter um, Luz and. Uh, Luz Jr. I don't know what we're calling her, but it's in a weirdly creepy way where it's like this, you know, I don't know how old he would be then, like in his 50s, maybe yeah, hitting on this, uh, you know, uh, late teen, early 20s. And it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, that's just that's just downright kind of creepy now. Um, but I think it, it played in really in an interesting way with him as a character in particular as kind of our antagonist. So, so I, 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 I totally see your point and I, I get where you're coming from. I guess I just really, uh, was drawn into the story largely by Leslie and I found, um, Elizabeth Taylor just mesmerizing on screen. I just, Everything she did was great, and just the way she uh, welcomed herself to this world and kind of buckled down and jumped in, even though she was, um, it wasn't her place. You know, she's this this prim and proper back east lady, and just kind of seeing her journey and how she adapts to it and and kind of pushes uh, uh, Bick to kind of. Uh, you know, change his ways a little bit, and and the way that she still tries to play nice with, with uh, with Jet, even after uh, there the kind of that the whole thing with the oil and everything. Um, I don't know. I guess I just ended up enjoying watching this Texas family and the journey that they were making 
over the course of the film. And I guess in my in my head, I I ended up starting to think quite a bit as I was watching it about okay, what is the title referencing? Is it, I mean, oh, it's a not great really, question. <laughs> we know there are no giants. We've established that. <laughs> Man, this, this movie, why do you like this movie at all? <laughs> right. It fails the it Detroit It fails test. the Detroit <laughs> so resoundingly. <laughs> there are no giants. And apart from the wedding scene where Rock Hudson is a full two heads taller than everyone else. <laughs> Uh, okay, so it's either Texas in just kind of the giant sense of it, but I mean, I think largely it it falls to uh, to Bick, and and he's kind of this he's this giant um, landowner. He has this mega cattle ranch. He's always you know lounging about with senators and whatnot. But and then I, for me, it really boiled down to the end of the film when uh, he kind of finally changes his tune with uh in, in regards to his daughter-in-law who happens to be Mexican and when this this they stop at this diner and you get this great scene where the uh the owner um tries to kick out this this Mexican family um uh, and Bick uh, defends them and and he gets in a in fisticuffs with this guy and loses, and then at the end of the film, it's just it's a really nice bit with uh, with Leslie telling him, you know, after, uh, you know, you know, he's because he's like I'm a failure, nothing's turned out like I planned, and she's like, you know, you are at last my hero after everything that we that you know has gone on through our lives. Um, now the Benedict name, I can't remember what she says, but it's like it's it it's it's a success, yeah. and I I thought that was actually really nice the way that. It um, evolved and, for me, became symbolic of what the giant was and is just kind of that growth that, that he goes through in transforming his company and, and his, his uh, uh, focus on, on his way of life. That, that, I, I think that's a great point. And, I, and to that, I would just say those, that example and, in fact, his final standoff with Jet, where he refuses, he puts up his dukes, uh, but then does not carry on with the fight a because jets just right, yeah. wasted um uh you know that he's standing up for his son whatever you you might say about the his son's argument to that effect but then he goes and stands up for his daughter-in-law um it, it adds such resonance to the relationship between his son that was strained and i i found that the resolution of those elements at the end those two fights where he's willing to stand up was resolution that came, I don't know if it, it was just a sort of unearned, that I felt great about it. Like, I really enjoyed watching it, and I think Rock's, Rock Hudson's portrayal in this movie finally got interesting for me in the last third of the movie as a result of all these kinds of changes that he was going. He definitely changed. He grew as a character, and um, I, I just had so little patience for him in the first two-thirds of the movie that um, it, it felt like unearned resolution to me. And and so, as much as I really like that, and I think you're right, it, it, it shines a spotlight on what this movie, you know, could have been all about, and and the what this movie was poking at, um, and and I feel like it also sort of peels back the holes that I really wanted filled. And I'm going to give you one example because I'm interested in your take on it. Part of what makes Leslie so interesting is her role as an advocate for this village of uh, the Mexicans who are doing the work on the farm, right? 
Correct. And she goes out there to investigate them, and she says, "This is, this is just a scandal. It's a scandal how they're living, and they're sick, and they're. It's just, it's a scandal." Uh, and then that narrative is over, right? We don't see any evidence. She brings somebody down. She brings this doctor down to work with them at the at their little village, and then it's over. Like then we don't we we never get to see the work that work of her life come to any sort of fruition, and I found that really frustrating. She makes such a big deal about it about that being her role and that you know really pushing on the boundaries of sort of you know her rights as a woman in that family and in marriage and in that community. And then I found myself really frustrated that we didn't actually get to see if they made any significant changes in their homes. We never went back there. Well, I, I think I would argue, I, I largely, I think you're right. Um, I do feel that it gets uh, dropped a little bit. But I would say, you know, okay, there is Salminio as as uh, Angel all grown up. And so, and he's really largely there um, because of the care that she put in and, and basically saved his life and everything like that to me was that representation of that and without having to see it. So to me it worked, but I can see your point where it's not, it's not letting us kind of go along and seeing some of that. Because for me, what that angle represented is a change in, in the culture of the, the ranch hand, right. And, and, uh, and the ranch, the rancher. And what we saw in Salminio is her sending her doctor, you know, her white doctor to the Mexican camp to save that one child. And later she brings another doctor down uh, to to support them. Uh, but we never see how the ranch was changed. I guess that's what I'm talking about. Because I see your point. I mean, she definitely saved Angel um, and, uh, by her intervention. That's not pushing at the boundary of culture. That's that's her sticking her nose in something where everybody said didn't belong to save that one boy. I, I can I, I totally get it. I, I see your point. Um, I, I guess in my mind, I just felt like there's there's always these little things going on, and she's kind of sticking her finger in because we see her constantly sticking her finger in things. You know, she's got a very much a women's rights mentality, and when these men are all sitting around talking and they keep trying to not include her. Um, you know, she just lays into them, which was just fantastic. Yes. Um, and, and that doesn't come back that much either, except in conversation. And that's where I think it is because they talk about, you know, I, I need, I like a little vinegar with my salad or whatever he says. And other people saying, oh, you know, she's always had a, a way of saying things or, you know, they all have kind of an opinion of her and she's created this personality and everybody's kind of adapted to it. And, and to a certain extent, I'd say probably going along with some of her uh, things, even though they may not completely see eye to eye with her. And I certainly think that Bick has kind of fallen into that as far as helping out with the uh, the Mexican families living um, on the property, um, even though he's probably rolling his eye uh, eyes as we and we get that sense when his son is uh, Dennis Hopper. Um, kind of comes and introduces his new wife and everything. And, and he, he tells him later, he's like, I told you it was, you're asking for it. It's, it's like that mentality that he has, even though I think that Leslie has kind of changed his mind to a certain extent. So I don't know. I, I see your point, but I also feel like it wasn't an issue movie. It was just, you know, watching these people and just kind of the way that they were 
adapting to this world. Yeah, and I, I guess I would just say to that, in a movie that's three hours and 22 minutes long, they have the runway to resolve <laughs> something. But I think they do. <laughs> well, you know, again, agree to disagree. <laughs> to your point, I think that uh, one of the things that the, the the elements that I like so much about uh, about this that we see how you know Bick changes over the course of the film, and you know, I think we can largely attribute his relationship with Leslie to his own change, even as much as he struggles with his own issues. That Jet doesn't change, and Jet didn't get her. And Jet wanted her. That love was unrequited. And uh, and I think that's really interesting when you look at how those two pair off at the end of the movie, Jet and Bick. Jet doesn't make it, arguably. You know, he's he is left on the floor and, and Bick goes home to his to his family and a family that ends on a symbol of enormous progress for the time, right? That there is a, a there are the two toddlers there, and one is a white toddler, and one is a mixed race uh, a Mexican uh, toddler with his son. It, it, it was amazing that a movie ends <laughs> on that on that sequence. So uh, I, I really did enjoy that element of it. Well, not only that, but I think that that um, allowed for this film to have what ended up being for me, a really powerful first shot, last shot. Yeah. Because the first shot we get, it's this, as the credits are rolling, it's just a big sprawling Texas with tons of cattle and oil rigs. And and you get a sense of kind of what Texas is all about, at least as far as what Bick is concerned with, right? It's it's the money and and the cattle and, and all of that sort of stuff. But then by the time we get to the end, it's changed its focus. And I found that to be quite a powerful way to kind of go through this story about this man and and what um, what becomes the focus of his life and and just the way that Texas is changing too yeah right I, you know when you get to see that that was a great example of a value system at work right when we have all these signals of stubbornness and his just absolute fear of change and uh, you know his family and the people who work with him you know constantly prodding him after his one of the many calls that he takes with jet trying to have him sell the rest of the the oil rights to the 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 farm or to the ranch he's his i guess it was his uncle who was that some some yeah those there is an old relationship to him says most expensive call you ever had cost you a bi- about a billion dollars a year for the next 50 years just to put right. a sense of scale to you know what he was trying to to keep sacrosanct and I, I thought that was that's a really powerful thing that they were trying to talk about here yeah definitely uh and i i feel like that element was uh, one of many things that they had going on here with kind of the 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 way that the land rights uh, uh were being used and exploited yeah um not to mention the way like where did the land come from i love those little conversations and and how um that is something that that um Jet seems to hold against Bick in the beginning, right? You know, when he's saying things like, well, it had to come from somebody and, uh, you know, referencing that they basically stole all the land from the Mexicans right. when they when they took it um, or bought it for cheap, whatever, five cents, five cents an acre or whatever. Um, but, you know, certainly nothing that he has a problem with later. Um, but I, so I, I love that kind of the way that we're looking at all of that with the racism, with the women's rights, with... All of this stuff. I mean, it just felt like there was a lot of stuff going on here, which was uh, made for a 
really interesting film from my perspective. Well, can I? I just want to ask you about alcoholism in the story, and and we'll talk about it with Jet in a little bit. But I found myself one bit frustrated me that I didn't feel like uh, Bick was had a problem with alcohol until suddenly it felt like he did. Was I missing something? Yeah, it wasn't developed very well. I, I never really remember seeing him starting to drink. I just remember that all of a sudden there was a scene where he was drinking and his son was just like, go easy on the bourbon, dad. Yeah. You know, I, and it's just like, oh, is he an alcoholic all of a sudden? Like, yeah, that was that was a strange um, addition there that was never really developed effectively. Yeah, I, I didn't think so either. I'm glad I wasn't alone there. Although I will say, what, oh man, now I can't remember the line. That same uh, character, he says, you know, can, can I start the bourbon? And he says, oh, the bourbon will kill you. He says, it's either, it's either it or me. One of us has got to go. <laughs> Something like this at the end of the movie. It was a great line. I think that's Uncle Bolly. Uncle Bolly, right, right. Uh, it's yeah. just a great, great line. Somebody's got to kill the yeah. bourbon. <laughs> it's either him or me. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, uh, great stuff um, interspersed in a in, in a very very long movie. This movie, Andy, if you went to look for it in our famed Cinemascope, because you know you've had some struggles with James Dean movies in the past. Yeah, East of Eden was a East problem, of Eden was a challenge. This movie you didn't have to worry so much. Right? Yeah, this film was not shot in Cinemascope. Interestingly, um, I, I found this so. Um, peculiar, but I guess I can understand it. George Stevens didn't want to shoot it in CinemaScope, which was kind of the thing to shoot in when you were doing these big epics. He wanted to shoot in just kind of the standard film format, kind of the regular 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio, because he said there's a lot of height in it. And what happens with CinemaScope is you lose the height, and he wanted to emphasize the height of things, like the height of the oil rigs, the height of their house, uh, uh, just and and all of that, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you can still represent the height, you know, in a wider screen format as well, but that was kind of his his emphasis. And in a film called Giant, and uh, where he wanted to really show the height of things, uh, I was like, okay. I mean, I, I guess I'll give it to him. It, uh, I thought it worked. I think they shot it in Warner Color, um, which I think was Eastman stock, and so I will say the picture quality looked a lot worse, uh, and weirdly inconsistent like sometimes it was crisp and amazing and then other times it was just really um poor imagery i don't know if that's uh, uh just a function of the time or mm. if they were just running into problems with the uh with the technology i i know we'll talk about this later when we talk about sequ- uh, sequels and remakes but i did hear that this uh, movie is going to be remade uh today but to keep it you know in tune with the giant they're just going to shoot the whole thing portrait on <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, uh, I'm waiting for a for a cinemascope portrait. Cinemascope oh. portrait, yes, yeah, that's right. And and you go into the movie theater and you have to sit in a swing, and it just lifts you up and you swing <laughs> to watch the movie from the middle. Oh, it's terrible. It's the worst. Edna Ferber wrote the book. Uh, did you read it twice? Have you read? Did you do your homework? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. You, you know, I didn't. I, I've never read anything of Edna Ferber's. I've seen some other films, I think, that were adapted from her works because uh, she had written three um, novels that dealt with racism. This was the third. Before this, it was Showboat, which was adapted for uh, the screen twice. And then Cimarron, which was also adapted for the screen twice. How strange is that? But um, she's, uh, I mean, she was one of the... Uh, um, 
uh, I think she was one of the uh, uh, vicious circle people, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. Back in the uh, yes, uh, back in the day, absolutely. I believe she was kind of in that. Yeah, in that uh, in that group with Mrs. Parker. Yeah. She did Dinner at Eight, which I, I've seen the movie version of that, and she wrote the book Come and Get It, and um, I really enjoyed that film. Hmm. Um, so I've seen some other adaptations of her work, but I've never read anything of her. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. Uh, this is a scene that I had a uh, I had a wonderful time with this scene. It has a weird attachment to me. It is uh, it is a James Dean scene, and we should say there are some brilliant James Dean scenes in this movie. There aren't enough of them. Uh, in this scene, we have him uh, making tea for Leslie, and so it's just uh, it, it's just uh, Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean uh, coming from the outside into his into his house, and it starts with a gunshot. Yeah, well, is that a weird way? I mean, maybe it's a Texas, a Texas like a, a text or something. When you want to get somebody's attention, you shoot your gun to get them to from, stop from the top the of car. your oil derrick. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly how it works. That was kooky. That was kooky. <laughs> yeah, it, it, why did you? Why do you love the scene so much? Well, what about it is is draws you into it? First of all, uh, it's James Dean. Uh, I think his performance is absolutely sublime. His his sense of shame. His sense of uh, just befuddlement at this entire experience of having this woman that he obviously cares for uh, in his house trying to do something right, uh, you know, and gentlemanly and proper, and yet failing at every turn, uh, I think is just wonderful. It is the high, the high point of his um, sort of befuddled ranch hand character before he turns into something, you know, the, the Mr. Hyde. Uh, version of of himself and and I have a real affinity with that. I love the weirdness too. I love the weirdness of the production design that he actually has uh, pictures of Leslie cut out of newspapers, you know, in assorted poses, uh, you know, post pasted up on his. Were wall. they all Leslie or just the one? Well, I thought they were all Leslie from different magazines. Oh. Um, oh, I thought I thought I assumed that it was just her wedding picture, and then other girls kind of cut out and posted around. Mm, it. I'm going to need to go back and look I at didn't that. See it I, that closely. Yeah, yeah, my 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 look at it was uh, was that it was all her. Either way, it's weird when she walks in and sees it, uh, and uh, and then they sit down, and she is so wonderfully proper and kind to him, and so generous socially. You know, there's one thing I can say to you, Jet. You make a wonderful cup of tea. And his response just a little bit later is, well, that's not good at all, is it? (laughs) When he takes a taste of the tea. I think it's fantastic. It also... And then she doesn't say no. She just just, says, so when are you going to get married so you can get help with things like this? Uh, and and uh, all of that subtext, you know, him talking about how he's going to find a woman. He's going to go back east and see if he can find uh, somebody there, which is exactly how she ended up in Texas, right? That Bick found her back east, right? Clearly, he's telegraphing his uh, affection for her. And uh, I think her kindness is her way of, of sort of telegraphing the, the what if, you know, she I think clearly has an affection for him uh, that is a little bit of a puzzle that you don't really get to get a sense of, you know, what does she really think about him? But I've never, I never get an impression that she's interested in him. You know, I I think that she is a very um, generous uh, person who, who gives of herself and, and likes to uh, likes to talk with people and sit down with people and all of that. And uh, I I think that um, she finds Bic a I mean a jet a curiosity, 
and is very polite to him. And, um, you know, she doesn't say anything about the fact that, that he's got her, her pictures yeah. cut out and hanging on his wall, which is kind of creepy. Well, or, nor the fact that, uh, you know, he is clearly also broken in several significant ways. And, you know, I, I, my, um, criticism of Bick's transition to being to having trouble with alcohol absolutely doesn't stand here we get to see him actually sneaking a drink and literally sneaking a drink in the other room trying to to you know soften the the hard edge of having her and in in there the shame that he's feeling the anxiety uh and he is very very clearly a quite stubborn racist Yes, very true. And and that's yeah. hard. That's a hard conversation for them to have, and it was clearly difficult for them to have. I, I think this is a, a real high point in the film for me, as a result of all of these things going on, the subtext, the emotional text, uh, and, and both of the these performers are just great. I really enjoyed this sequence. Well, and it's just, it, it, it gives you that sense of, you know, he's with the woman that he really wants and i you know maybe it's because he really likes her maybe it's just because it's it's a, the woman that bick has you know he definitely seems to have that uh, angle also but also it's just that that you know one upsmanship that he really wants to kind of prove himself and he says someday i'll have a place no one will be ashamed of yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it, it just, it's, and I love that he's, you know, he, she looks down and he's got those like books of like masterly English on his table. Like he's trying to get himself to, uh, to a place where he actually is a man of status without actually having the money for right. it. Um, uh, it just says so much about who this guy is. It's a really amazing scene and works really well. And I, I, I do feel that it's a great turning point for him as a character because as she leaves, she steps in the mud. And of course, that's how he kind of ends up discovering the oil and everything. But I, I feel like there's enough in the subtext going on here that for me, it's clear how he's going to go down this this darker road. And I really like that because he seems like he could have gone down a better road, but there is enough darkness in him and enough anger about uh, people like Bick and stuff that he he's got that one upsmanship and he wants to he wants to show them that he is better. Totally, so I, I found it really uh, compelling. Scene. Totally, this is where those roads part that we were talking about, right? That were it not for Leslie, he might have ended up in a very different place, a softer place, a gentler place, a much more sort of world aware place, uh, and that's exactly where Bick ended up. And I think that's this yeah. is this is that sequence, and I think it's an important one. Um, so, uh, camera William Mellor. Yeah, it's you know uh, the camera work here is nothing um, too. Uh, it'll knock your socks off or anything, but I think what you find consistently throughout this film is that Stevens and uh, Mellor really like to uh, linger on shots. You know, they like to kind of hold on on longer takes. And it works nicely in context of the story. You know, you get some really just um, powerful, long shots of, of scenes that are allowed to just kind of play out and linger. Um, this scene doesn't have quite as, uh, as long uh, shots as some of the other ones do. But it's still, you can get a sense that they... 
they found a way to tell the story with as few camera moves as possible in a way to just allow you to kind of get into the characters. We've only talked about one other film uh, in William Miller's extensive catalog, uh, which is uh, Compulsion, which he did uh, just a couple of years later, 1959. Also terrific. That is a fantastic film. Production designed by Boris Levin. Uh, uh, you know, mostly the pictures. I love the pictures. But his, his entire hovel is is great. What I like even more, though, and it's not in the scene, but immediately outside of his scene, is the way his hodgepodge Beverly Hillbillies uh, oil derrick comes together. It's just perfect for me. And I, I think it, it looks so... Uh, of the of the era and of the construction, you know, capability uh, that uh, it, it really sells his transition for me. I was so I, I don't know why this struck me as something that fast I was so fascinated with, but I was so enamored with the idea of the oil, like when when he strikes oil. It's not in this scene, but it's it's shortly after. Mm-hmm. But it's like how how do they? make fake oil in the movie like what i mean obviously they've got like tanks under that have some black gooey stuff but i mean it, it obviously can't be something that's going to harm the environment like i yeah. don't know i was so curious about it and I, I couldn't find anything online but it is one of those things that and he kept putting it in his mouth yeah i, I was like oh why is he opening his Ugh. mouth and drinking down the oil Ugh. i don't care for that uh, no it, but it was an interesting thing and obviously something that the production design team had to uh sort out but uh you know they did they did a good job with all of that stuff. I always, I've never found an oil eruption in a film that didn't satisfy me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that. Uh, well, I'm an oil man that never had my own uh, oil I, rig. I guess I think those are there are some therapeutics therapeutic depths to plumb in your psyche. There, Andy, <laughs> I think that would be a real treat for some enterprising therapist. Uh, oh, Gordon Bow was a makeup supervisor and did the age makeup. Uh, so you'd seen this movie before. Did the age makeup hold for you any better than uh, this time? You know, I I listened to them talking about it a little bit uh, beforehand, and and something that that clued me in and is like, okay, I I will accept it. I, I still don't like it, but I'll accept it. It's the fact that George Stevens, when he set out to make this, he opted to cast younger people and make them look older instead of casting older people and then pretending they were, you know, in their twenties when we're starting the story. Um, and, and then they get older to kind of their actual age or maybe a little older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting angle to go because what, uh, I don't know, I guess in my mind, when they're young, you get much more of the, um, the kind of the, that eager beaver sort of, uh, you know, they're not quite as cynical yet. They have their uh, ambitions and everything in front of them. And so I could kind of click with that uh, in the younger parts of the story. And yes, it's a little rough as, still as it gets older, but in my head, I just looked at it like, okay, it's like theater. It's like, you know, you're going to just put them in a, in a gray wig and, and a couple extra lines on their face. And now they're 50. Yeah, right. Well, and you know, rock Hudson, <laughs> and, and I think I sold okay. it. Rock Hudson was probably the best of all of them in there. Uh, for me, as he got older, I think he, maybe it's his height, his stature. He just he he felt the most at home in in what is otherwise some kind of weird age makeup. I think Elizabeth Taylor. What I found myself reflecting on the way she moved her body, and I think she she embodied the age much better than she looked the age. 
uh, in, in terms of her makeup, but uh, the worst was the the Howard Hughesification of James Dean. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it was it was rough. Yeah, it was definitely rough. You know, I should probably give a shout out to our special effects team, Ralph Webb and Jack Cosgrove. They're probably the team that was uh, behind stuff like the oil rigs, uh, kind of uh, the eruptions from the oil rigs. Um, more so than Boris Levin, or at least working in conjunction with him. So, so kudos to them. Um, I, I think that it all worked quite nicely. Well, and and you know, in the spirit of elemental effects, uh, there's a lot of rain and wind in the bottom end of this movie, and that would be credit to them as well. There's a storm that I you get the the feeling I think that the entire hotel complex is about to be ripped off of its foundations. There's so much wind, and uh, that you know, if if you've been through a Texas storm, that rings. That rings true. So yeah. Uh, um, yeah. that was it, it was great. And and I love how just everybody was so happy as the doors are blowing open and rain is pummeling them from the outside and everybody's still smiling with their drinks in hand. That's Texas, too. <laughs> Dimitri Tumkin uh, is the uh, man behind the music. And he's a he's a composer that's done a lot of great stuff. I feel like we've talked about him on the show a few times. Um, I can't recall what uh, right off the top of my head, but uh, High Noon, that's one mm-hmm. of them. Um, he's, you know, he just, I think he does a great job here. He's got some nice themes. I love Jet's theme and how that uh, evolves over the course of the film. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I think it works well here um, in context of the film. Editing. I want to talk about editing just briefly, uh, Andy. William Hornbeck and Robert Lawrence, and this is not about our deep scene dive again, but the final fight sequence in the restaurant with Sarge is edited in a way that is unique to the entire film. Did you notice? And shot. And shot. Right, right. We had many more. It, It felt like a different team came in to do this thing. Yeah, the strange POV shots all of a sudden. Strange POV shots, strange blocking, strange cutting, the the sort of uh, the really quick cutting. It added a sense of exhilaration to the fight. It, it I thought, was uh, it made the fight much more just sort of real and tactile for me. And it kept cutting back between the uh, Luz and uh, screaming to, you know, let him go, let him go, uh, you know, stop. The, the family is in trouble. And then it would it would cut to the baby. Um, who was clearly unfazed by the entire thing, <laughs> had no issues at all. Uh, and the sound was handled interestingly, too. You know, they would mute out the sound of, of everything but the the fight, and I thought that was, um, and and the, what was going on in the, I guess, is there a soundscape? I can't remember if there's music in that sequence, but it was, it was really a, a gritty fight scene. I thought it was great. Credit to those guys. Yeah. Just running through the cast, a uh, few others that we want to touch on. Uh, Rock Hudson, obviously, as Jordan Bick Benedict Jr. is Rock. Yeah, he he's is Rock. a big man. I did, I did like it when they they put him. You know, obviously it's of a time, but they put him and Elizabeth Taylor in separate beds. That's uh, oddly prescient. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do have to say, though, the coffee was weird. Did you catch that? Who does that? I did. I, I, that just was a strange thing. Like, why are they drinking coffee in bed before they go to sleep? And, and it wasn't just... Like, they actually have, have a, a cup, pot yeah. sitting there. It was like the whole deal. Yeah. They have the pot and the sugar and the cream on the tray in between them. And he was just there making coffee. Like, that is not a thing that I would want my actors to do during yeah. a scene. And then that was he put this big tablespoon of sugar in his coffee and then went right to bed without brushing his teeth. <laughs> I had a real problem with that. 
Oh, he's going to have a caffeine high. And, well, she does say in the, in our deep scene dive, she does say, oh, it's nice to have someone who drinks tea. Everyone here just drinks gallons or coffee by the gallon right. or whatever. So right. There's your example right there. Yes, it is. Carol Baker is Les Benedict the second. What's great about her is that she's actually older than uh, Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and she's <laughs> playing her daughter, uh, which again goes to kind of the theatricality of stuff like yeah. this, where it feels like theater when, you know, the actor's age doesn't matter necessarily as long as they carry themselves well on screen. And on screen, Elizabeth Taylor, when she's got her gray hair and she's kind of acting a little more parental, and then you have Carol who plays that, that Luz very nicely as uh, opposite her uh, i think it actually works oh yeah yeah I, that it did work i actually really liked Luz. i thought it was great and i thought she was great uh when she was being hit on by uh dean you know by jed i thought that was oh but her cool. best scene is when she goes to see him after and she's standing in the doorway just watching yes. him that's a real heartbreaking scene and it it works really effectively. oh the way she closes the door oh yeah you're right heartbreaking mercedes mccambridge as the elder Luz. Man, what a, I mean, I guess it's kind of a Texas ranch woman. I don't know. I just, she, she was a tough, uh, a tough cookie and certainly a tough personality. But what was so great about her is that this is Mercedes McCambridge, who we've talked about on the show before because she was Pazuzu, Pete. <laughs> it's so weird. She is the voice of the demon in The Exorcist, which is fantastic. Oh, my Throw goodness. a little bourbon in there and a little uh, cigarette, and next thing you know, you've got Pazuzu. Dennis Hopper, of course, is the young Jordan Benedict III. I love watching Dennis Hopper in these early films. Um, uh, He's kind of mesmerizing. Well, and it's just, it's such a change from what he would become in the in the later, in the 60s, um, when he'd get into the Easy Rider phase. And the drugs and everything, and and become really kind of a different person. Here he is just so such like a clean cut uh, guy, and it's just it's kind of refreshing to see the, a version of Dennis Hopper that is not the one that's more uh, kind of stuck in your head. Oh, I totally agree. It was I, I found him really compelling, and and I think he sold it well as the young enterprising doctor. I thought he was I thought he was just terrific in this sequence. His final scene, the showdown with his dad. Uh, was a, another one of those real highlight sequences for me in their relationship. I thought it was just great. He was he was wonderful. Um, not the same. Uh, I, I I can't say the same for Salminio, who I think was uh, what what is the word uh, underutilized. <laughs> yeah, it was great to see him again, um, fresh in the heels of Rebel Without a Cause. But at the same time, it's just like, why did they even bother bringing him in for this? Yeah. It was kind of a disappointment to have him credited, and then you see so little of him. Rod Taylor as D Sir David Caffrey. Yeah, we haven't uh, talked about him since 101 Dalmatians, but uh, here he is again. The um, He's the, the Aussie who, I think this was a very early in his career. This is one of his first uh, features, and here he is kind of, uh, I think, who is he? He married uh, Judy, I think. Oh, right. And that was the creepy, uh, creepy wedding. I can't remember. But that, was this the one where, where Bick shows up and sneaks around the corner? I think so. It was creepy. Yes. I could not get my eyes off of him sneaking his head, head around the corner to watch Leslie from behind. Yeah, that was a little... Not great. Stalkerish. Yeah. She's got a lot of stalkers. A lot of stalkers, Liz Taylor. And Nick Adams. 
Yeah, this was uh, sad. I mean, James Dean died really kind of before he had a chance to finish doing all of the stuff he needed to do for this. And and his whole last scene when he's in the hotel ballroom um, giving his little spiel and everything, the audio just wasn't very um, great. And Nick Adams, who was a friend of his, who um, actually was Chick in Rebel Without a Cause, um, he actually, I, I guess they thought that he sounded enough like James Dean and he actually was brought in to, um, dub the last, uh, few, uh, lines in the last few scenes that James Dean was in. How to do an award season. This was a popular one. I mean, all the critics loved it. All the audiences loved it. Uh, it was one that uh, just kind of uh, moved everybody. Um, it ended up getting seven wins and 15 other nominations. It it, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, um, but uh, it only ended up winning for uh, Best Director. That was the only thing that, uh, that it took home. George Stevens did win that. The big films that it lost to were um, Around the World in 80 Days, which um, it lost Best Picture to. It lost uh, Best Adapted Screenplay to, and it lost Best Film Editing to, and it lost uh, Best Music Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. So all of those won for Around the World in 80 Days instead. And then uh, The King and I was the other big film that year. And James Dean and Rock Hudson were both nominated for Best Actor, but they lost to Yul Brynner and Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, and Best Costume Design, Color. Both of those also lost to The King and I. The other award was Mercedes McCambridge for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind. I don't know. What do you think yeah. about the? Uh, what do you think about that Around the World in 80 Days thing? This is um, one of those years where I was reading about it, and it sounded like the... Um, I can't remember if it was the, the producer or somebody behind Around the World in 80 Days was just a real marketing machine type of person. And one of those people who was able to uh, kind of uh, tap into all the right people to get the award, uh, the word buzz and everything. And it ended up taking it, which, man, I don't know. I tell you, I, I'm not overly thrilled that Around the World in 80 Days won. I mean, it's an enjoyable enough film but certainly is not what I would uh, have given best picture to. Um, that being said, I don't know what I would have uh, given it to. It, the other films nominated were Friendly Persuasion, which I haven't seen, The King and I, which I haven't seen, and The Ten Commandments, which I have seen, but it's been a long time. Wait, you I haven't seen The King and I? I've seen parts of it. Well, that's a... Does that count? That's a thing you got to rectify. <laughs> I, I I actually really enjoyed uh, the King and I, and I think Yul Brynner's performance is great. And given the other things that were released that year, I think it's it, it's fine that it uh, is nominated and should have probably won uh, more than it did because I was not happy with Around the World in eighty days. Yeah, it's it's one of those stories that you know it's kind of cute. I love the idea of it; like the concept is great. But I just feel like they've, it, they, I don't know, the films, the stories end up kind of becoming like just nonsense yeah. stories and, and opportunities to get as many cameos in as possible, which I think is just dumb. I feel like actually the one that the adaptation that I remember enjoying more than anything else was the TV movie version that had Pierce Brosnan as, um, as uh, what's his name? Oh, that's interesting. The David Niven uh, part as uh, Phileas Fogg. Yeah, right fascinating i don't think i ever saw that it was uh yeah it was a tv movie version of it that was like a, a mini series and i felt like you know it, they actually did a better job and it, it well my recollection is it wasn't as silly as uh this one was 
What? But or the and I didn't even bother this? seeing the one with Jackie Chan. I mean, that would just look so dumb. You know, it it's Shanghai noon, but in Britain, well, it's around the world. Well, it is around the world. <laughs> but you know what? That Steve Coogan is a funny dude. I'm just gonna say he is a funny he is. guy, and so he's, I, I he's cut in him some, some of slack. my favorite stuff. Yeah. But I. Yeah. Jim Broadbent. But I mean, they still felt they needed to go that the same route of doing all the cameos and all the nonsense. Yeah, no, that was yeah, it was it was a little nonsensical. But it's Jackie Chan and the stunts were great and it was it was a ride. So I think you're it it is barely under the six star IMDB six star limit. And so I, I know that it's it there is some degree it, exactly a point two star degree of guilty pleasureness uh, going on here, but it, it's still it was fun. It was fun for the kids. You big curmudgeon. I, I don't know if I'm gonna look at me. Gonna how quickly I became to the I came to the rescue of Jackie Chan's Around the World in Eighty Days during our discussion <laughs> of Giant. Can we please talk about this most amazing remake of Giant that I did not catch, and now I have to listen to? Yeah, I, I had no idea this was even out there, but there is a musical that came out in uh, two thousand nine of of Giant. Yeah, it is a, um, uh, I, I don't know much about it. I, I've never heard of it until I was kind of reading up about it. And uh, sure enough, uh, there it is. So, yeah, it looks like, uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it doesn't look like it made it to, to Broadway. I don't think it ever made it to Broadway. I think it, it yeah. um, it's it been. It was off Broadway in 2012. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it didn't get that kind of big big notoriety that big launch but it i you can definitely find the score uh, i'm gonna listen to it i wonder if i'll like it more than oklahoma well it's got songs like uh did spring come to texas and uh, uh private property and and uh oh look back look ahead and don't and my texas. don't forget the timeless classic the dog is gonna bark <laughs> okay okay how to do at the box office andy uh, well, George Stevens had uh, $5.4 million to make his Texas-sized movie, which equates to about $47.8 million today. His movie premiered in New York City October 10th, 1956, a bit over a year after Dean's tragic death. The movie opened nationwide November 24th and was a huge success, becoming the third highest grossing film of the year behind The Ten Commandments and our favorite Around the World in 80 Days. It raked in $39 million domestically, which is $345 million in today's dollars. I couldn't find any international figures, but apparently it was a huge film in France that year. Uh, even with its massive runtime, the movie ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $1.5 million. A solid film for the team and a fitting one for Dean's last film, as it was his most successful to date. You know, Andy, I just don't think I'm wired for this, this movie um, I I get it, uh, but it was just too long, and the things I truly loved about it were too far, uh, too few, and far between. I enjoy it. It's not a film that I would watch uh, often, if ever again. It's something that I can enjoy, and I can see that there's some some quality stuff going on in here. But it also, it you know, it's it's it it took a while to get into. Once I once I was into it, I enjoyed it, but it did take me a little bit of time. Well, then I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can see our stack of movies that we've talked about on the show or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap on the word flickchart, it'll take you right to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks 
against ours. First up, we have Giant or the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Numi version. Yeah. I'm going with yeah, tattoos. It's going to be tattoo, yeah. Giant or the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Munchausen for me, please. Yeah, I'll say Munchausen. Giant or Near Dark. Near Dark. I'm going to say Giant. Okay. Giants or vampires? Yeah, I'm going to give you giants. Uh, I'll, you can have oh, it. I'm not okay. going to. I'm not. Uh, You're not going to fight. I'm not going to fight one. you on it. Giant or Star Trek Insurrection? Star Trek Insurrection. That's a rough it's one. It's really not. It is. It's, it's got the silly data. It's I, although, as I said on the show, it has what I think are some of the my favorite Star Trek aliens. I love that race the, the, they were so fascinating what about the baku <laughs> I, you know i'm gonna say star trek insurrection only because i'd probably watch it first yes you would but i think giant is a better film maybe but who's gonna care when you're not watching it <laughs> uh giant or volunteers absolutely volunteers. <laughs> i feel like on principle i should say giant but i'm gonna say volunteers i would <laughs> definitely right watch that first <laughs> <laughs> giant or star trek into darkness Definitely into darkness. I, uh, that one was so rough for me. I, I uh, here I'm going to say giant. I'm just going to. I'm just. I'm standing up for it, Pete. I'm going to do it. Okay. All right. I need to at least once. Oh, well, then, then we should. We should go to the mat. Here we go. All right. Ready. One, two, three. Paper, scissors. Into darkness takes it. Giant or the Hudsucker proxy? I'm going to say giant. I'm going to say Hudsucker. Natch. Here we go. Here we go again. One, two, three, three. scissors. Oh. That was a one hit. I tell you. Giant or Bull Durham? Bull Durham for me. Bull. <laughs> sort of choke on it. Durham. Giant or say anything? And I will say say I anything. I will say anything as well. Well, that lands giant at number 308 on our chart. 308 out of 351. It's pretty low. Pretty low. Um, but, you know... It's a tougher one. I do enjoy it, but it is a tougher one. I think I'm, like I said, not wired for it. Uh, I, I think its length causes it to suffer a little bit, certainly in those rankings. I would watch a lot of movies before I would put this on again. Uh, on the on my personal ranking, this one landed at uh, 798 uh, out of 1,021 movies. Uh, how to do for you? Uh, it landed 2157 out of 3956, which is about a 45%. Okay. So I, mine's significantly lower than yours at 22%. If I were going by the algorithm, uh, this should be at one star on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, honestly, just based on Dean and, and Taylor alone, uh, that feels too low to me. Um, but this is certainly not in the four star category. I think it's a it's it's a stretch two and a half. And is that a like or just a two and a half? Not really like. I don't know. Where do you put it when you just don't think you're gonna be coming back to this movie very often? I guess it's. Uh, a I'd like. say you don't love it. I don't right? love it. No, it's definitely my. Yeah. So I'd say no like. All right, for no me. like. Well, I'm a three star and a like. So okay. we're we're kind of close. But well, no. so that rounds up to a three and a and a like. Uh, and and yeah. I will be the boat anchor on this one. But um, mostly, I just, I, I have to say again, how cool James Dean is. I I didn't think all that much of James Dean. I think I probably saw the movies that I'd already seen too early and didn't think much about it. Watching them back to back, I had a blast watching this guy work. A blast. He was amazing, super fun, uh, a, a fantastic character actor, and... Uh, I get it. I feel like after this little trilogy, I get it. 
uh, he was a major loss. Well, he's he certainly has uh, he followed the the school of acting as histrionics. I mean, he's very big yeah. in his performance in all three films. But I think that is part of what made him so good and so enjoyable and so memorable. And absolutely, I, I get it too. I mean, this is a, an actor who is uh, mesmerizing to watch and certainly, uh, you know, knowing that he really only made these three films and then died in just this horrible car accident um, before he even really had a chance to finish this one. I mean, it's just, it's tragic. And the the potential projects that we lost because he wasn't around, it's really just, it's, it's very sad. Very, very sad. His loss means our series is short and that allows us to move on to something new. <laughs> Woo! Tough segue. Oh, dark. Well, that was a little rough. Dark. Yes. <laughs> uh, but a- Andy, I have to tell you, I am deeply excited about our next little uh, series. It's going to be fun. Where where are we going from here? Or shall I say when? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's a series uh, maybe we already covered, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never this know. This is of course that's right. This is our time travel series. We're going to have quite a bit of fun with this. It's all recent films. Um, everything is within the last, uh, about the last decade. I think we start off um, in 2007 with the brilliant Spanish film by Nacho Vigalondo, uh, Los uh, Cronos Crimenes, or, or Time Crimes. Cannot wait to watch that one again. And then we uh, do About Time, the romantic comedy. And uh, then we do uh, Interstellar, which I guess is kind of time travel. It's, I think, a stretch to land on this list, but it was one that was voted by our, our Patreon True. members. And then we uh, end with uh, the Ethan Hawke, uh, Busiest Man in Hollywood film, Predestination. Oh, I like that Predestination, Andy. Yeah, it's a good film. It's a nice little uh, 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 grouping of, of time travel projects mm-hmm. and a nice variety also. So it'll be interesting to to kind of revisit all of them. Well, I, I see one of them for the first time because I still have not seen About Time. Oh, this will be great. This will be great fun. I'm, I'm very excited about it, uh, especially jumping back into time crimes. I think that's going to be a great way to kick us off uh, next week. So for our Patreon uh, supporters, we have uh, our options for the list that we're going to uh, talk about. We're each going to pick three movies um, over on our Saturday matinee, the the Patreon supporters show. And we're each going to uh, bring our lists and have a little battle. And for the lists, the options that we've come up with to connect to to time crimes are... The first one is pretty broad, Pete. It's a, it should be an easier choice. It's time travel. Yes, and I think that's time it. travel, yeah, that's right? But we should say it can't favorite, be one of the movies that we're talking about on the show. <laughs> that's yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, favorite time travel movies. The next option is films where the protagonists have to cover their faces. Oh yes. Um, but we have an exclusion here. No superheroes. Right. Right. And then the last uh, option is the downward spiral movies. Okay. The movies where. Our protagonist makes some choices, and it keeps sending them on a, a spiral downward, and they keep trying to get out of it, but it just keeps going down and down and down. Oh, I like that So one. those are the three options we're going to put to our Patreon supporters. They're going to vote, and then 
I guess you'll have to tune in uh, to the Saturday matinee and find out what it is that we're talking about. Don't forget, patreon.com slash the next reel. Throw us a buck or two uh, and uh, you can join the club. We would love to have you. We'd love to have you there on the Saturday matinee. Love to have you on Discord. It's a great group. And uh, talking about movies, uh, please join us. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart. He runs our Instagram program. Ben Steerick helping out over there. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter and the Blot Spot. And the next real theme, Ragtime Instrumental. Uh, it was uh, performed by Eli Catlin, which you can find on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Man, this movie had some trouble getting good DVDs out to people. <laughs> Boy, did it. Well, it doesn't help that they made a really crappy transfer, and a lot of people are upset yeah, about that. it was that. really bad. It was really bad. Uh, but we do we did manage to siphon out uh, a couple of stunningly fantastic one-star reviews. Uh, would you like to do the honors? Sure. I have one star by J.L. Sands who says uh, it was over three hours of really wasted time. Horrible movie. I watched Giant last night on TV, and it was over three hours of really wasted time. Horrible movie. The poor horse was so badly treated by idiot McCambridge and was then killed. No one in the film could have cared less. Really disgusting. The rest of the film was so completely overblown and badly acted and beyond any reality. Sorry, I wasted my time. Should have turned it off after the first few minutes. You know, I think it speaks to uh, a point that we didn't bring up is is that there. I actually found it really interesting, personally, the way that they showed the horse uh, abuse when McCambridge was riding. You had these really wide shots of her riding the horse, mm-hmm. like trying to force it to get her to bring her back. And then you'd have these extreme close-up shots of her spurs sticking into the yeah. horse. It was it made for a really jarring moment. So I can see why somebody would be upset about the way the horse was treated. But at the same time, it's like, this is kind of the way it was. You know, they would shoot the horse because it right. broke a leg or whatever. You know? Well, uh, Susanna didn't mention that in her review, Boring and Ridiculous, from October 4th, 2008. She says, what is it all these people are praising? I saw nothing of the quality which they seemed to see. Rock Hudson was ridiculous. James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor are too young to play their roles, no matter how much silver the makeup people spray into their hair. It was so long and boring. The blocking was clumsy and stilted. What else can I say? I could only get through one hour of this disaster. Academy Awards, give me a break. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, please, if you're going to leave a scathing review, at least get through the whole thing. I, I know I've complained about that. I know I've complained about movies that I wanted to turn off, especially that one thing you made me watch not long ago. Yuck. <laughs> but, uh, but God, that's frustrating. Now, it seems to be a, a growing trend, and it is, it, it's, it, you shouldn't be allowed to. You really shouldn't. You gotta be. You haven't actually finished. You the gotta project. finish the movie. That's all I'm saying. So, boring and ridiculous? Maybe. The first hour was tough. I could, <laughs> I could make the case. But how would you know if you didn't get through that last hour, which was the best part of the movie? So that's all I'm saying, Susanna, if you're listening. Thanks, Amazon. 
You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. <laughs> nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. <laughs> Seriously? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible. 